Weather today in the ground. I love you so badly. I could... They're solid plastic, so don't settle for imitation. But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. <laughs> Good evening, this is Alex Knopf, and this is the best of an Alan Smithy podcast. You give us 133 minutes and we'll give you 133 minutes of words. Tonight's audio commentary asks the question, have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? This episode, from the 9th of March, 2010, is an audio commentary track for Tim Burton's 1989 Batman. Welcome to an Alan Smithy podcast special commentary track. Uh, this is our second commentary track. We did one for Halloween 2, uh, the original Halloween 2, a little while back. And now we're doing one for uh, the 1989 Tim Burton Batman, the one that started it all. And um, we've, uh, we've got uh, both of our copies of Batman synced to the point where um, at the opening titles, the Warner Brothers shield uh, fades out. This happens after the background fades into uh, dark and dark clouds, um, because this is back when Tim Burton was still allowed to play with the Warner Brothers logo. I guess he still is, but it's kind of like at this point he was doing it, but other people weren't. He was just being clever like that. So we've got our copies synced up to where the shield has completely faded away, and we're going to start the commentary uh, right after the shield fades away. We're going to unpause our, uh, our copies at that point. So um, without further ado, we will uh, both of us unpause our copies uh, after the shield has faded away in three, two. Wait. Oh, on one or after one, after one, I'll say, okay. I'll say unpause after one. Okay. Okay. Three, two, one, unpause. There we go. Warner Brothers presents. Yep, and now we have the Danny yeah. Elfman music. Your first, your first, uh, yeah, big major Danny Elfman score in a this, way. This theme was so, um, the theme, this theme was so perfect that they had to reuse it for the Batman animated series, and then they even used it in the trailer for Batman Forever, even though, um, mm-hmm. Danny Elfman's music wasn't used in Batman Forever. Yeah, that was a poor choice. I mean, I like Elliot Goldenthal, um, but he was, he was not. Danny Elfman. Yeah. So think about watching this for the first time. It's like you really have no idea that the camera is supposed to be going through the uh, three-dimensional... The bat logo, yeah. three-dimensional carving of the bat logo. It's just extremely, extremely abstract. But then when it finally pulls out, you're like, oh, okay, I see. Ha-ha, <laughs> very clever. Now, the second one's credits are over... Are a little bit more traditional, which is kind of interesting because... They gave Burton free reign on the second one, yet it's the first one where he does this. Now, the first time you saw it, did you have any idea what was going on? Like, had you heard about it? or? Well, I mean, I'd heard about it, but nobody told me that the opening credits were going to reveal themselves to be the Bat logo or anything. Yeah. Um, 
I, I remember, uh, I'm not going to reference Tim Burton's commentary track anymore uh, after this, <laughs> but because you can go listen to that yourself instead of this one. But, um, oh, Ray Lovejoy, you know, he edited uh, 2001 and several of Kubrick's movies. Um, Tim Burton says that this is almost supposed to represent like going through the dark contours of someone's mind, <laughs> which I guess is the best uh, rationalization you can make for, for what it is. But Tim Burton, you know, I mean, I really, I love every, all of Tim Burton's movies from Pee Wee to Mars Attacks, which was about 85 to 96. And he really kind of lost it after that. But one of his um, hallmarks during that during that period of brilliance was really um, distinctive opening credits sequences scored by really distinctive themes by Danny Elfman. And of course, this is one of the, one of the best. Yeah. And I do, I think we should point out that pretty much besides, I think this and uh, Superman, all superhero movie opening credits suck. <laughs> like Spider-Man or X-Men. They're just laughably stupid. Yeah. So here's some nice matte paintings. People don't do matte yep. paintings anymore. With your uh, some 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 very suspiciously clean astroturf uh, greenery for what's supposed to be a filthy urban hellhole. And now here's your first Prince song. Yeah, it's very. I never even I didn't notice it for the longest time that there was a. It's the future, the first track off of Prince's tie-in soundtrack album, playing on a. And boot. um. I mean, the thing you notice about this is the costuming is very, uh, it's kind of 40s-ish. Yeah, right away, um, you know, people are wearing hats. Um, you know, mm. we make fun of um, we make fun of the Dark Knight for not having enough black people, but... Dude, there are all these black people. What are they doing there? <laughs> yeah. Chris Nolan would have been terrified on this street. <laughs> um I always feel, though, that, like, this family should be black, and that's why they can't get a taxi. <laughs> but, yeah, ob obviously right away there's there's a ton more black people. And they filmed this in England, for God's sake. <laughs> um, and there's still more black people than there are filming it, filming Gotham in America and Chicago. Where there are no black people, clearly. According, according to Englishman Chris Nolan. It's funny, I think Tim Burton was quoted in some interview as saying that the reason he shot Batman Returns on a soundstage in L.A. instead of in Pinewood in England is that uh, the first Batman had too much of a, quote, British subtext to it. <laughs> so he must have gotten, um, must have gotten annoyed with, uh, with the Englanders as well. Well, I think the co-producer on this, Chris Kenny, apparently saw this as the revitalization of British, American movies being produced in England, so... I'm sure Burton heard a lot about it while shooting. Burton really hates this shot here of um, the animated Batman. The animated Batman turning yeah. and walking. I think it looks great, though. <laughs> yeah. It gets the point across. You know, it doesn't really matter that you can tell that it's an animation and not a not a human being. Um, so, yeah, they say American Express card. You know, I, I read the... Um, the uh, Sam Ham script from you know probably like the first draft from '86 in preparation for this track, and uh, they don't mention American Express by name. They just say, oh, <laughs> "Hey, a gold card. Don't leave home without it." <laughs> but they put American Express in here. Maybe it was a maybe it was an officially licensed uh, product placement line. Maybe not. Well, there's also the big dialogue change at the end of this from all the scripts and novelization and adaptations and that sort of thing which we'll get to in just a second. So right away, this is, I mean, 
it would be kind of it'll be kind of annoying to keep comparing this to the Dark Knight over and over. But right away, um, it's a completely different approach from the Dark Knight in that Batman is not the main character, and we're introduced to him by other people's perceptions of him, like these two crooks. You know, it's like these two crooks are who give Batman, you know, his, mm. his introduction, and. Um, it also plays up this supernatural aspect of Batman, which the later movies didn't do at all. I mean, certainly not the Schumacher ones, but right. especially not the um, not the Nolan ones, um, because he's acting superhuman. It's like they shoot him, he falls over, but then he stands up, and it's a little it's a little ridiculous to think that these crooks wouldn't think that he just has body armor, or to, or these crooks wouldn't just think, oh look, it's a guy in a suit. But, right. like, because that's how the scene is played, you can buy into it, that they really do think that he's some kind of supernatural being and not just a guy in a suit. Right. I'm Batman, the line that the line that sold audiences on Michael Keaton when the trailer came. Now, of course, that line was originally, I am the knight, or something. That's right, yeah. But the the funny thing is, just this far in, and hearing the Batman voice, I mean, you know, they had to sell Michael Keaton and I cannot believe that people embrace uh, Christian Bale, even with that whiny little voice as Batman. I think even people who embrace Bale have do admit that his gravelly Batman voice is ridiculous compared to Michael Keaton's. Now, I remember the first time I saw this in the theater, I was so excited that Lando Calrissian was in it. I was just like, wow, Lando's in it. I know, and it seems like they cast him without any thought whatsoever as to oh look a black lady on the right. Um, it, it seems like they ca- <laughs> it seems like you know they cast this black actor without any thought whatsoever as to the idea that they're setting him up just to be two faced later. But it doesn't matter that he's black, you know, which is I mean God, that's the most progressive thing I've ever heard casting a black wow. casting a black guy as two face. <laughs> Because, you know, if, if they had stuck with uh, Billy D. Williams, I don't think his bad half would have been purple like it was for Tommy Lee Jones. I think they would have had to gone for maybe a, a pale color and have that kind of contrast. <laughs> but, um, you know, Batman's not going to reappear for a while. And instead, you know, there's people complain about this movie. They say, oh, it's more of an origin story for the Joker than it is for um, for Batman because we're we get these scenes of the Joker before he's Joker and we see his process of becoming the Joker. But, um, you know, this is like one of those things that Sam Hamm came up with that's really doesn't get enough credit because before this movie, there was Alan Moore's the killing joke, which set up the Joker as kind of an ordinary Joe who falls into a vat of acid and ends up the Joker. But, you know, here Sam Hamm just comes up with the idea that, like, oh, he was just a gangster with a, you know, with a sadistic streak, and then something happened to him that, um, you know, <laughs> that allowed him to be even more sadistic and flamboyant, and to have all this power as, you know, as a crime boss, because if you're just some average nobody who becomes the Joker, how the hell are you going to convince goons to work for you, unless you're already, like, you know, the right-hand man of a criminal empire? So, this was a really, this was a really smart idea of Sam Hamm's. And of course, we should we should mention, of course, that Nicholson does get top billing over Michael Keaton in the in the credits, and that may be why. I mean, I haven't done the actual calculations, but it certainly does seem like between 
his pre-Joker state and his post-Joker state, he does get more screen time Yeah, Keaton than Batman. But that's what I'll argue is what makes Batman a stronger presence in this movie is that his screen time is limited. So when he does show up, it counts more. Right. And, um, now you hate this performance. This is Porkins from star Wars. <laughs> yes, I do. I think it's a ludicrous performance. <laughs> and, and, and here's a uh, Robert wool. Look at that black cop. I'm sorry. I'm, sorry. I'm going to point out every no, black no, person. No, we, we should, we should. <laughs> um, yeah. Robert wall is really like lame and unfunny, but, um, I think his lameness and his unfunny performance kind of grow on you on repeat, on repeat viewings. Well, I think a, he's supposed to be lame and unfunny, so it works. Yeah, it's funny that, like, in the Sam Hamm script, he's supposed to be kind of a romantic rival to Vicky Vale. Right, yeah. But, um, you know, in practice, in the movie that was made, it's just kind of two goofy, jokey guys. <laughs> but I, anyways, I kind of like Porkins' uh, performance here because, I mean... It's hammy, but uh, between the you know all the fedoras and stuff, I mean, I think I think Sam Hamm probably you know knowing that this movie was going to be made by Warner Brothers, he went he felt more of a license to go for the quasi forties noir thing and making it into kind of a quasi gangster movie. Right. So as far as the as far as the quasi gangster movie feel goes, I think Porkins does his job pretty uh, equitably. In the background here, we have Tracy Walter, um, best remembered or maybe not as the uh, the acid case flashback in Repo Man who tells Emilio Estevez about the interconnectedness of a plate of shrimp. Now, I believe Bob the Goon got an action figure at this yes, time. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. You can get a Tracy Walter action figure. It's Bob, Bob the Goon. Exactly. I think Hootkins is better in this part than when he's talking to... Wall? Yeah. Well, I mean, if I mean, his character only really exists to set up that the Gotham police are corrupt. Right. This liaison he has. And here you get to see that uh, Jack Napier is kind of crazy. Napier, by the way, is Spanish for playing card, in case anyone didn't know that. Also, Alan Napier was the name of one of the uh, producers on the original Batman 60s show. And here's where Hootkins says, um, where you been spending your nights? And I never got that line. Um, I think, oh, look at I that. Think... That is amazing. I'm sorry for interrupting, but no, just no. look at that. <laughs> the integrated uh, sort of smoke into the matte painting was just... Did you ever get what that line was supposed to mean? Where I did, but I think I read the novelization before I saw the movie. So I mean, is he calling him gay? No, he's he's gonna he Hootkins is the one who figures out he's spending the nights with Alicia, or whatever her name is, and then oh, he he yeah. tattles on him to. <laughs> oh, he does, huh? Curly, yeah. How would he have uh, figured that out from that exchange? Is that Sam Ham in the glasses? Is that an uncredited cameo by Sam Ham? Because I've seen pictures of oh, Sam wait, Hamm. Black guy. And that's black what, guy. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen pictures of Sam Hamm, and he pretty much looks like uh, that guy who Robert Wall talked to. As he, yeah. and, and here's the really disappointing non-Bob uh, Kane cameo. I know. Like, was Bob Kane on the respirator that badly that he couldn't have been the cartoonist? You know what? I mean, 
According to McCain's autobiography, it was all logistics. Like, he just couldn't show up for it. Hmm. They've been trying, and then I think he died around oh, return, look. or forever. Kim Basinger has glasses. She's really smart. I like how there's a picture of a Popeye uh, Macy's balloon on the background on that clipboard behind them. I actually told that uh, that joke about the uh, long lens earlier today and forgot <laughs> where it was from. I'm like, where's that from? And so I Googled it and I saw it was from this. I'm like, that's kind of that's kind of weird. Wow, you stole a Robert Wall line. <laughs> On the day we're doing the commentary, too, yeah. Kim Basinger doesn't even wear these glasses throughout the rest of the movie, but it's like, here when they're setting her up, she's got to have her hair tied back. and she's I like the, there's that. also the New York postcard back there. Oh, I never noticed that. Yeah. Um, the thing about Kim Basinger in this movie is that um, it's kind of a famous story that um, Sean Young was supposed to be in the Kim Basinger part. And the two things I've heard about well, obviously, Sean Young broke her leg on, you know, training to ride a horse because there was a horse riding scene in this movie that got cut. But um, the other two things I've heard about why Kim Basinger replaced her was that, um, number one, Jack Nicholson personally insisted that they needed more of a Kim Basinger type. And the other thing was from some uh, London tabloid, they said that uh, Kim Basinger was blowing John Peters at the time. And that's why she got <laughs> the part, which I find which I find easier to believe. But then she hooked up with Prince immediately following it. Right. Well, anyways, <laughs> um, here's another so, here's another performance you don't like, Curly. Um, <laughs> again, again, I don't know if this is because I was you know young and impressionable when I saw this for the first time, but um, I think he's perfectly well suited. I mean, certainly he's over the top, but um, I don't know. It almost calls for that. I think. What don't you like about about um, Jack Palance in this part? Well, he's absurd. I mean, that's kind of the thing is, is that Burton does such a good job at making it not completely and utterly absurd, and then he brings these cartoons in. And, and I mean, Palance's performance is cartoonish. Even just the way he stands around and <laughs> does his thing. I mean, it's, you know... Well, it's absurd. Yeah, I don't believe he was holding a meeting for a second. <laughs> and, and you know, I know Jack Palance can do push-ups, but it did look like he was limping there. Um, I still find myself saying, thank you, gentlemen. That's all. That's all, gentlemen. Thank you. Um, well. And the other thing is, I don't believe that Nicholson would be afraid of him. I don't think at this point in his career, Nicholson would still be working for him. And this is just goofiness. Yeah, but I like it. Okay. It's memorable goofiness. Well, I, I'm sure I didn't have a problem with any of this as a initially seen. Look at those pictures in the background. I'd love to know What's what all there? these things were. Yeah, yeah, I mean. Well, actually, uh, Tim Burton's story about Jack Palance on the making of this movie, which I'm sorry I'm doing this now, but I got from the recent Batman special edition. Um, <laughs> Uh, in a later scene, he says that Nick, uh, Palance scared the piss out of him by, like, when <laughs> Burton was calling action when Palance wasn't ready, and then Palance said, like, I've made a hundred movies. How many movies have you made? <laughs> and just shook him up. So maybe maybe the reason he's so over the top is because Burton was afraid to direct him. And then here's the first introduction to Wayne Manor, which, how we were supposed to know <laughs> ben, that? 
den of iniquity and depravery and gambling. <laughs> Where the hoity-toity of Gotham give money to all those unfortunates on AstroTurf. In a, in a wicker basket. I see a black guy there. Nope, there's another black guy. This was filmed in a real English manner. This wasn't a set. Or maybe it yeah, was. I maybe, always felt bad they never came the, back to this one. Maybe it's just the exterior. But here's a, here, of course, is Michael Goff, who made such an impression that they kept him around for the Schumacher movies. Yeah. And I think Tim Burton knew Michael Goff from Hammer Horror movies. Well, he does a much better job because um, he's not a hammy guy. And, you know, trying to get Michael Caine not to ham it up is such a challenge that, of course, he's going to pretty much ham out. And here we go. Yeah. So, I mean, again, consider the introduction of Bruce Wayne as opposed to, you know, the Nolan movies where it's like you're seeing this. Okay, yeah, you've got this moment with Michael Keaton right here, but you're basically seeing it through Kim Basinger's eyes of like, oh. But, I mean, just look. I mean, this is – I think every time I don't watch the first one. And and, and now now he's gone. Like, that was it. I mean, he's going to drink, yeah, but, you know, then we're going to pick up with Basinger and and Wall in a second. Another black guy. He's still not the main character, Michael Keaton, at all. He's really kind of lurking in the background, which was just a deliberate choice because, like, that's his character. And it's just interesting that, you know, Tim Burton, oh, uh, (laughs) Harvey Dent's cute black date in the background there. Um, It's like Tim Burton really made the conscious... He said, like, okay, if Batman is this much different than Superman, then Batman the movie needs to be this much different from right. Superman the movie. We're going to do the opposite of following him from his childhood to his, you know, crime-fighting which, career. Which actually was the original script for this. Um, there's a script out there by Tom Mankiewicz that is basically Batman Begins only with 1983 sensibilities. and um, uh, Tom Mankiewicz, screenwriter of Superman, of course. And, uh, oh, oh, yeah. Black Cop. Black Cop who tells him that Eckhart's cleaning out Axis Chemical. I mean, but of course, this was made in the 80s. So, at that point, um, there was sort of a more organic progression toward integration of uh, black actors and white actors. I mean, you'd gone through the Cosby show, the Jeffersons and things like that. It's only after I think the WB really became black television that, you know, main, the, the big three <laughs> networks realized the re- ha- resegregation right. blacks and entertainment. Yeah. And of course that's going to carry over to movies and especially from. So here's another clever idea from Sam Hamm and an unspoken one, the idea that someone who, well, I mean, it only works because in Sam Hamm creates the idea of the bat suit as a suit of armor rather than just a, you know, a costume to put on. But yeah, here's another, here's another real clever idea, a real understated thing that um, Batman Bruce Wayne would collect other suits of armor and he would study them. I think this might also be the first movie where, Keaton was really charming and sort of it endears him to the audience. I mean, like stuff like this, stuff like the pen, it really makes him, you know, yeah, likable. 
And by the way, I mean, Sam Hamm's script really writes Bruce Wayne as like a handsome debonair (laughs) James Bond type, which just kind of makes it all the funnier again that he's competing with Robert Wall (laughs) for Kim Basinger's (laughs) attention. And I believe Michael Keaton is, uh, yeah, he is shorter than Kim Basinger. So he's probably on stilts right here. Yeah, I'm sure they would have played that up in the other I think, approach. I think this butler is Indian or Pakistani or something, because he was probably just some, you know, extra living in England that they got. He doesn't get a close-up, but you can tell he's not white is what I'm saying. It doesn't count as a, <laughs> doesn't count as a black guy on our black guy meter, but something I've always noticed. And by the way, after having watched uh, Gossard Park in our in our most recent yeah, we episode, know this is totally wrong. This is totally wrong. They wouldn't, <laughs> the servant wouldn't have to ask how many more cases of champagne to open. <laughs> he would just know. Alfred's different though because he's a confidant. And you're in on the joke and stuff, but it's like then they're just gonna scurry off somewhere. <laughs> Well, it's a nice way of sort of um, updating the TV show's absent-minded Bruce Wayne to... Right, and the Bruce uh, Wayne who counts on Alfred to tell that it's time to take the bat pole somewhere. Right, because it wasn't it Alfred who usually fielded the calls on the red phone from uh, Commissioner Gordon. I actually can't remember, unfortunately. early security systems. <laughs> and it's a lot of cameras for just one hallway, but anyway. Completely without dialogue here you just get this great shot that tells you everything you need to know about how obsessive, compulsive, obsessed with security uh Bruce Wayne slash Batman is. And if you really didn't know that I mean Bruce Wayne and Batman were the same person. Like, say you just knew nothing about Batman whatsoever. Watching this movie for the first time, this is where you would begin to go, ah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's in a cave of some sort. Bats. I also love how this was the only uh, Batman to ever wear glasses. It really, it really emphasizes the idea of uh, Bruce Wayne being a nerd who needs to turn to Batman. And in that sense, it's a bit like Superman because he acts nerd as his alter ego. He acts nerdier than he actually is. Looks right. like Sippy is really nerdy. He's like neurotic, obsessive, compulsive. And um, uh, Tim Burton said in a print interview once that part of the reason he cast Michael Caden is because you you just look at him and you can tell that he's all fucked up. He's <laughs> got that crazy look in his eyes. So this scene, this whole sequence is probably the most kind of like an old gangster movie that the whole movie is. And um, once it actually gets up and going, um, when the police start shooting it out with them, it's it's probably the best sequence with Batman in it in the whole movie because Batman does some stuff to these gangsters that um, it's not... It's not like just typical action movie stuff with Batman in it, like punches and kicks. Right. It's, it's actually tricky stuff like, you know, suspending a gangster on a line or, you know, creeping up behind a gangster and punching him out. 
because he's stealthy and stuff. And that's another thing about not being with Batman the whole time, because we're, we're almost a half an hour in now. We're about 25 minutes in, and um, we've spent so little time with Bruce Wayne or Batman, and it's because we haven't been with Black him. guy. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. Uh, that's good. Keep it. <laughs> It's because we haven't been with him the whole time is that like when he does sort of appear out of nowhere as he's going to in this sequence, we can kind of believe that he can appear out of nowhere because he's right. he's a bit as much of a mystery to us as he would be to to the gangsters and to the, Which pol- they, and to the police alike. They kind of do that a little in that fir- in the first Batman remake movie in Batman Begins, and they sort of got rid of all of that sort of hunting the criminals type aliens versus criminals feel they had to it Yeah. for the second one. Um, Speaking of aliens, this whole Axis chemical set is left over in Pinewood from um, aliens. Okay, here we go. Right, so he appears out of nowhere and, you know, this is something that only Batman would do here. <laughs> now, I don't think he... He does kill people eventually in this, right? Yeah, uh, none in this sequence, though. Right. What What do you think of um, What do you think of Commissioner Gordon in this movie? I mean, it's um, real, it's a real perfunctory role for sure, but as far as that goes, I think Pat Hingle, you know, I think it's far more successful than the way that they tried to adapt uh, Batman Year One and the new ones with. Uh, well, I mean, Pat Hingle's also a just a solid sort of supporting character actor kind of guy. He's not like a Gary Oldman who can be terrible. I mean, like he is in the Batman movies, just absurdly bad. So, This is the kind of stuff that Tim Burton almost felt embarrassed about uh, directing, like shootout scenes. Right. So he was, in, in, in every interview he gave, he was so self-effacing uh, about it. He was like, oh, you know, action movies aren't really my thing, so this is a big stretch for me, et cetera. But it's, it's almost so, you know, cops and robbers-y that it, it really straddles that weird line between, I mean, because this was, this was kind of a big deal that it was a PG-13 movie. I remember Roger Ebert really came down on it for being too violent or whatever. And then, of course, a year later, he gives four stars to Dick Tracy, which has, like, guys being shot with Tommy guns left and right. And it's just a terrible movie on top of it. But yeah. Ebert, of course, thinks The Dark Knight is the finest movie of the 19 or whatever, 2000s or whatever. Yeah. So a really brilliant feature of Sam Hamm's script is the way that um, it has Batman confront Joker before he becomes Joker. And then the next time they confront each other, it's just for a second as Batman and Joker. Right. And the next time it's, it's Bruce Wayne and the Joker. And then finally it's Batman and the Joker again, having it out at the end. But um, just, just the way it, varies it each time is really brilliant oh there's that there's that psychotic smile from michael keaton and he disappears how did he do that who cares it's cool who cares about the logistics of how he did something physically impossible like this that's what they said about the new one is that spider-man taught the studios that they all wanted origin stories and they all wanted really big explanations to things the girls wanted that because Spider-Man's a girls uh, franchise. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of what they tried to do with Batman. And um, But it's so much better like this. <laughs> yeah. And now he's back. 
and he's Wonder Woman apparently because he can bounce bullets off of his wrists. Now, the thing that always pissed me off about the first Schumacher movie is that, and but he tries to save him. Yeah, and and the way Burden and Lovejoy kind of edit it together isn't. I think it's intent like that look there. It's like. <laughs> You can't really tell if he's deciding to let him fall. Yeah, I mean, like, this time watching it, it's like, did he just, you know, let him go? Yeah, I know. You can't tell. But I wanted to say that in uh, the Batman Forever movie, there's some dialogue about how Batman's really just encased in a suit of rubber, so it's ceased to be body armor, which I found idiotic. Um, yeah, and then, you know, it ends with, the sequence ends with him doing one last batman thing which works with the magic of film editing and wouldn't necessarily work logistically like you know <laughs> of course these cops would know where he went and how exactly would he be able to get to the roof just by using his grappling hook <laughs> location? doesn't matter filmically it works this shot is a bit of a lift from um, The Killing Joke, I think, because I think The Killing Joke had some panels where, like, Joker was crawling out of the river all yeah. white and stuff, so that's kind of the nod to, the, to that there. And Tim Burton was actually vocal at the time. Black guy. Tim Burton was actually vocal at the time about saying that he had just read The Killing Joke and he took it as a big inspiration in addition to uh, The Dark Knight Returns. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. The Corto Maltese thing is all from... Uh... Another black guy is all from Dark Knight Returns, actually. Right. Black woman. Popeye. Look at that 80s style. <laughs> so, um, you know. This would have been the first kind of movie that kids would have actually seen with Kim Basinger since her Bond movie. If you think about it, that's true. Um, and this is about where, I mean, I think you and I have kind of had a similar, you know, love hate relationship to this movie where it's like, it seems great the first time you see it. You come back to it a few years later and it just seems really inadequate. And then you come back to it a few years later and, and you like it again. Yeah, and I think the reason that people fall out of love with this movie is because um, these are the weakest scenes right here, where Kim Basinger and Michael Keaton have to romance each other. And what? I'm not going to blame Michael Keaton. I'm going to blame Kim Basinger. Yeah, and especially after you've seen the second one, right? Where he's so and good. you see how yeah how good they are together. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just this is just it doesn't cut it. No, I mean, these are the low points of the movie. It's a bit more like a typical Michael Keaton comedy than it is anything. You know, I don't think I've ever been in this room before. I mean, you just can't believe that Kim Basinger is falling for this guy. And, he, and, and when she sleeps with him... <laughs> on the first date, on yeah. On the first date, you sort of can't believe that their relationship is based on anything but her being a gold digger. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that refrigerator. I mean, the guy's a billionaire, and he's got a refrigerator from 1954. Mm -hmm. And his butler just sits around with company telling embarrassing childhood stories. Well, in this one, there's a lot less emphasis on him being haunted. 
as opposed to the second one where it's he's very clearly messed up. In well, it's some funny. Ways. It's funny that the second one doesn't make any reference to his past, even where it could, but. It, it just sort of lets him be silently traumatized. Um, whereas in this one, the idea, I mean, I think Sam Hamm has described it in interviews as like the idea that someone who's psychotically committed to a cause falls in love and then that conflicts with their psychotic cause. But I mean, you know, just as, just as much as I can't really believe Kim Basinger, Kim Basinger's attraction to Michael Keaton, I can't really believe Michael Keaton's attraction to her either. It doesn't even yeah. it doesn't even seem like he's falling in love with her. So this is where the Danny Elfman music uh, d- has to do a lot of work. Yeah, I like just it. look at his performance here in this scene. I mean, it's just so great. I mean, he's selling Batman in a way that you, a Nolan movie could go on for sixteen hours and never do. So here's um, the Roger. Yeah. Here's the Roger Corman scene. <laughs> This is another kind of lift from the killing joke because um, in the scene, in the same scene as Joker coming out of the, uh, the toxic waters being all jokerized, he looks at his reflection in the water and starts cracking up. So this is the variation on that with a, with a Nazi doctor and, and instead. <laughs> and his, his suit has turned purple. Oh, wasn't he wearing his purple suit? Uh, was it purple? Now, the purple is a tie-in to Prince, right? <laughs> Joker wore purple before this movie. Come on. He certainly did. I think, it's just helpful? Okay. No, no, I think, I, think, uh, I think he was wearing the purple suit. He was wearing the purple suit when he was with Palance, but um, during the whole shootout scene in the factory, he was wearing a trench coat over it, so you couldn't see the purple underneath. But yeah, I mean, this this is just a scene that, you know, sort of instantly became iconic. It was one of the... Look at those terrible tools, though. I mean... <laughs> those came from Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> they were Steve Martin's dentist tools. I remember in the Sam Ham script, there was like an intermediary scene between him leaving the doctor there and getting to Palance, where he was like on the street... And his hat blew off, and some punk was like, "Yo, man, nice green hair, <laughs> totally punk." <laughs> and he's got those glasses on again. <laughs> hey, here's another great line that you can use in real life. If if someone ever says one drink and they're flying, you can say, "Why are you afraid of flying?" <laughs> Works every time. Just like uh, Lando Calrissian's Skull Forty Five. Now. I, I do like how it's never mentioned in the like, you know, Wall never mentions she's just a gold digger, which you'd think he might in some of his more sensitive moments. This was the scene where Palance yelled at Burton, <laughs> coming out of the bath. So yeah, I mean, Joker gets a big entrance. <laughs> Well, I mean, Jack Nicholson is the draw for the adults. That's right. Because comic book movies weren't yet for adults in 1989. Are comic book movies for adults now? Uh, Ostensible adults, yeah. (laughs) 
a little overacting by Palance. <laughs> And this is just total, you know, Warner Brothers gangster movie. You dirty rat, you set me up. I wonder who that bust of is. Well, who are all the paintings in Wayne Manor of, too? The uh... yeah, ancient Wayne ancestors. Yeah. It's interesting that, like, at the time, um, it was supposed to be kind of a secret of what... Uh, Nicholson's Joker makeup would look like. I mean, people knew what it looked like before this big reveal scene, but right. this was back when they could have sort of gotten gotten away with it. And you know, something I, something I always wondered about that I'm doing it again that they revealed on the DVD is why he had that purple splotch on his neck there. Okay. Um, it just rubbed off from his coat. That was it. <laughs> and they decided that they that was the take that they needed to use, even though it had the purple splotch. But um. I think it's one of those things that you could maybe be a little more forgiving of when you were watching it on video. <laughs> like maybe the colors just kind of bleeded onto each other. And now we switch over to the... Oh, he's still in bed with her at this point, okay. Right, he has just done it. And he's completely unimpressed. Now, this, this breaks many comic book rules that um, are currently in place with Batman, which is basically that he is celibate. Uh, right, right. He's uninterested in sex. He's what Asperger's uh, patients like to call asexual when they're describing themselves. So, it's kind of interesting how the comic book people who have been sort of thinking about the character for years and years come up with these inane <laughs> things whereas you know very yeah. simply the the screenwriters and the movie guys are like well he's still gonna be interested in girls or they used to be <laughs> i mean <laughs> true well then again i mean batman still has kind of these arbitrary romantic interests in the christopher nolan movies it's just that he doesn't even get he doesn't even get laid in them and it's like what does it say that michael keaton can get laid with kim basinger in his movie but um <laughs> But uh, Christian Bale can't even hook up. Like the little hooting noises that he improvised. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I remember in your Batman review on the stop button, you say that like Nicholson's performance is peculiar because he's phoning it in, but he's not contemptuous of the material. Right. I think was the words you used. I think he's, when, he's, I think when yeah. he's making those hooting noises, he's maybe just a little bit contemptuous of the material. He's kind of making fun of the, the scene that he's in. Except he'd just done that reasonably professional, weird breathing thing, so... The heavy breathing, yeah. Yeah. But, it's, I mean, I think, I think... I don't know. I don't want to say that phoning it in saves it, but... I mean, if he had played it seriously, it would have been such a tiresome bore. It would have been the Dark Knight. I don't think he could have done it. I don't think Nicholson actually could have done it in that sort of way, just because at this point in his career, people had been asking him to do this Shining over and over again for 10 years, so right. it was just the Shining in makeup. Now, let's not forget that this is still the biggest single payday an actor has ever received for a movie. Still? I 
he made hundreds of millions of dollars <laughs> because of his back end deal. All right. He got a cut of the merchandising rights. Another uh, gangster movie type scene coming up here, telling the other crime bosses of Gotham. Um, well, that guy's Asian, and I'm sure some of these guys are supposed to be Italian, but... I think there were Asians in uh, <laughs> Dark Knight, weren't there? He's, he's not uh, jamming pencils into black guys' ears like he, like the Joker is in The Dark Knight. And by the way, The Dark Knight completely fucking ripped off this scene. Yeah. <laughs> the idea of Joker addressing the crime bosses of Gotham and telling them well, to taking over. That's kind of the thing about the Nolan movies is when they rip off the Tim Burton movies, they never do it in a way that they're respectful of them. Here's, um, another, here's another interesting uh, Sam Hamm idea. The Joker would wear flesh-colored makeup sometimes. I mean, I think he did in, in the 40s comics, like, to disguise himself, but never to, not to pretend to be the person he was before he was the right. Joker, because he, he didn't know that. And it's just kind of an interesting idea, but it, it, give, it gives that really nice visual of him uh, wiping it off and having it splashed off with water by Kim Basinger later in the museum. Now, there is that one scene in the uh, Dark Knight where the Joker's not in his makeup, right? Something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, he's, he's pretending to be a cop or something in, a, in the parade. Yeah, you're right. Oh, okay, so that's just one more thing that uh, the Dark Knight had to steal. But that was the thing about the Dark Knight that I just couldn't believe, like, that the pure, the same purists who got their panties in a bunch, that the Joker, like, has a permanent smile in this movie. Because uh, of uh, the bullet that ricocheted off of uh, Batman's wrist, like they're upset about that, but they're not upset that the Joker's skin isn't actually dyed. Right. That seems to be one of the most integral things because otherwise he's just a guy who's wearing makeup. <laughs> it's the miracle of uh, advertising, and I think it's just comic book fans will, you know, they'll go along with anything. <laughs> You can have as many crises on infinite Earths as you want to. There you go. Well, what I always find interesting is sort of about the embrace of Dark Knight is comic book fans are not the most... Uh, they're certainly not the guys who supported Heath Ledger in Brokeback Mountain, so I find it amusing that they are all of a sudden his biggest fan. Kind of late to the game in a way. I love the little uh, eyebrow thing that Nicholson does here. Now, this almost seems like... Did they ask... Uh, In this little moment, talking to the corpse. Great yeah. little moment for him. Jerry Lewis. <laughs> what about Jerry Lewis? I think Nicholson... Seeing it this time, it's almost as though Nicholson's performance has inspired <laughs> Jerry Lewis a little. <laughs> like pretending to type on a typewriter. <laughs> In the, Just in the, the facial expressions. I mean, like, even here, still. <laughs> yeah. Right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the imaginary conversations. That is that is kind of a, a Jerry Lewis thing. Well, I mean, that's kind of the thing, is, is that um, it's the different... Is the Joker supposed to be funny, or is he supposed to be... Um, perversely sadistic, and that's the new funny... Well, like this is well. This scene is like a perfect example of straddling that line. Whereas the mm. dark, 
whereas Christopher Nolan and David Goyer don't understand the meaning of the word subtlety, so they have to <laughs> so they have to do something like I'm going to do a magic trick. Oh, I just killed a guy. Ha ha. That was the magic trick. But anyways. Yeah. Oh, look, the days of filing cabinets. Now now this movie is truly retro, even more so in retrospect. Without... She still has her glasses on because she's at work. <laughs> when she's not gold digging, she wears her glasses. I like how at this point Robert Wall has just completely disappeared from the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, I may as, may as well mention it now. I mean, uh, we're sort of we're releasing this around the time of Tim Burton's uh, Alice in Wonderland is coming out. And um, Tim Burton was quoted as saying about Alice in Wonderland that he felt like the challenge of the movie was uh, to add, to create a plot that people could care about because in Alice in Wonderland, the Lewis Carroll book and through the looking glass, it's just a lot of, um, you know, it's just a very episodic uh, bunch of set pieces meeting different characters with no real rhyme or reason to it. And if you, if you read what he was saying about Batman or even, I just remember this interview he did with someone, it was around the time of Ed Wood, I think, and it's in a book called uh, Tim Burton Interviews, where the interviewer asks him, what's the first Batman about to you? And this this was, this was is when like Batman was Tim Burton's biggest embarrassment, because it was the movie he had the least control over. Um, and he said, well, I don't know, it's about duality, it's about flip sides, um... You know, I have a, unfortunately, you know, my problem is I can't always summarize, I always see it in terms of these abstractions and and not really, like, it's about this good guy who's saving the city from blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's like now he feels the need to turn Alice in Wonderland into Alice's saving Wonderland from blah, blah, blah. Whereas in this movie, it's like he, in a, okay, in another interview, he said that he felt that the screenplay of Batman, like as good as it was, it had this kind of epic feel to it that he wasn't really suited for. Um, hence, you know, Robert Wall and Billy D. Williams and, you know, kind of like more characters than it really needs, basically, because it is sort of setting up future sequels. Black guy. Um, and the best moments in this movie are the little character moments. They so clearly are. It's the Joker talking to a corpse or it's, um, Michael Keaton laying his flowers down uh, where his parents got murdered, as we just saw. And he didn't didn't feel that he was well-suited to action. (laughs) Which is why the action sequences are so... uh, Well, they were basically... uh, We haven't gotten to them yet, but pretty... Basically, after the museum scene, every action sequence was forced upon him by John Peters. (laughs) (laughs) Who insisted on "quote unquote" action beats, as uh, Kevin Smith described them when he was talking about consulting with John Peters on a Superman movie. Mimes, wow! It was much more hip to make fun of mimes in the '80s than it is now, wasn't it? Yeah. I guess they were much. Mimes were much more of a social problem in '89 <laughs> or '86 when the script was written. It didn't really need to be Robert Wall in this scene, but <laughs> they worked him in. Black woman. 
Um, well, I mean, at that time, when it is Robert Wall at this scene, and sort of the entire cast comes together and without even seeing each other, it feels a lot more like an old 40s or 50s Warner gangster movie where you're... Right, because this is a gangland-style killing. Right. Innocent civilians and police. Look at the cop not doing a thing. (laughs) Yeah. Tommy guns. Very Dick Tracy. And then, of course, there's the bullet that ricochets off of uh, Michael Keaton's shoulder, implying that he just walks around all day with body armor on underneath. Check out the uh, the, fr- the frowning mime in the background there. I love that guy. <laughs> yeah, there. Frowning and nodding his head like, uh-uh, uh-uh. I don't think so. Vicky Vale's like, didn't you tell me you were going out of town? <laughs> Black guy, paramedic. Ed Koch. <laughs> So here's something that um, we kind of realized rewatching RoboCop recently, uh, that RoboCop pioneered the use of having like news footage as interstitial stuff between scenes, and um, Batman just kind of rips it off completely. Although, yeah. I guess, I mean, I, maybe it was just kind of the zeitgeist, because I'm, I'm sure some of those types of newsroom scenes were written into the script that had to have been written, you know, around or yeah. for the time of RoboCop. But it's just interesting that like they're both sort of comic book movies, this being a direct adaptation, Robocop just being a comic book style movie. But um, it's just something about like that kind of stuff almost works better in comic book type movies because it's easier in a comic book to transition between panels of uh, normal action and, and uh, newsroom stuff because the panels are already in the shape of television sets. And here's the first... Um scene between uh, Bruce and Alfred where it sort of comes up that the first kind of they're talking about Batman scene type stuff. I know and it's like 50 minutes into the movie and this is the first scene when we've seen the two of them together alone without having to you know front for anyone else. (laughs) And Alfred just wants him to hook up with Vicky Vale like he just wants some little bat kids running around come on. (laughs) And I like how Alfred not only is the butler, he also can hack into the police files. Yeah. Pre-computerized oh. police files. Right. These, they these... never mention that she's easy. I'm sorry. <laughs> these are the scenes that um, that uh, Prince was able to sample the easiest for Bat Dance because it's just Bruce Wayne and Alfred talking about how hot Vicky Vale is. <laughs> she is great, isn't she? Ooh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. I want to bust that body. <laughs> Here's something I never noticed um, in the next shot uh, on VHS because of the picture quality, but we're about to cut to Joker looking at photos of um, uh, experimental victims of the, the laughing gas. And there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a file on the table marked uh, CIA, so apparently he got this uh, Joker toxin from the CIA. 
And it's not really made clear, but at this point in this scene, he's supposed to have set up shop in the Axis Chemicals factory. Right. Um, it took me a long, it took me repeat viewings to catch on to that. I never, never quite noticed that suddenly there were. Uh, oh look, they got his publicity still. Um, mm-hmm. I never noticed that there were suddenly leaky pipes in the background, and why would there be <laughs> leaky pipes in his penthouse apartment? And also, how did he find time to make special Joker get jackets for all of his goons? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, of course, the you know the subsequent Batman movies, beginning right with Returns, take it to a whole other level where you've got a circus gang running around who supposedly used to be a real circus. But I mean, in this one, I guess they took, you know, they took the idea of goons with matching uniforms about as far as it could logically go, like. Yeah, the Joker might make a <laughs> embroidered patch for his, uh, <laughs> his goons to sew onto their jackets, but I kind of I kind of don't like that because it was much cooler to have his gangsters, you know, dressed like '40s gangster movie gangsters in their trench coats and stuff. They still got their fedoras, but it's not as, <laughs> it's not as cool as if they just had their trench coats on still. Well, they also don't have the scene where he designs the Joker logo. I mean, <laughs> that would have been a pretty good scene. It would have been like the scene in Batman Forever where Jim Carrey is coming up with his Riddler costume. Have you shipped a million of these things? Yes, sir. Ship them all. We're going to take them out a whole new door. I don't know what it means, but man, he's excited about it. <laughs> and it works. And here's the newsroom, which, you know, is some kind of weird amalgamation of a, like that logo is totally from the 40s, but right. 80s style newsroom. The anchors could be, you know, Casey Wong and Jess Perkins from RoboCop. I mean, this is the scene that owes the most to RoboCop. Yeah. But, but Burton does manage to do something that RoboCop didn't do, which is to have, like, this shot right here, this two-shot of uh, mm-hmm. the two cameras, and then on the left we see what's happening to the poisoned uh, anchor woman, while the these... anchorman on the right doesn't see what's happening. These are also actors. I mean, in RoboCop it was What's-Her-Face from Evans. Entertainment Tonight, and uh, <laughs> Casey Wong is played by the uh, L.A. news anchor. Black lady. Uh oh. Is she in the boat at the end where they're going to blow up the, the innocent white people? Oh, wait. She has a name. <laughs> Teeny Lister didn't even have a name, man. <laughs> he was scary black guy, wasn't he, in the credits? I think so, yeah. Yeah. So this commercial's classic. <laughs> And this is this is uh, really now, this is a really great you know just recreation of something that would happen in the comics all the time, which is the Joker. The Joker loves to go on TV. He's a TV clown. Did they include this in the uh, on the new DVD special edition, like the commercial? Um, by itself, no. Yeah. Although you know what, for, for for a long time I've heard. I don't remember where I heard about it first, but I heard that there was uh, a cut scene where the Joker is doing basically the same thing, but on a radio broadcast. <laughs> and, um, yeah. 
I don't know where that would have gone in the movie. And Tim Burton says that everything that was shot for the movie ended up in the movie, but um, except for that Halloween uh, scene, except for that retarded uh, little girl asking Batman is if it's Halloween right after he runs out of the museum. But yeah, I always heard about a Joker on the radio scene that uh, never made it. Yeah, the TV scene, of course, uh, just works perfectly. Look how flummoxed he is that Alfred's bothering him. I mean, it's like he's Batman, but watching something here. He's busy. You know, in that in that file there, uh, there's a picture of the other actor who plays young Jack Napier right. when he kills Bruce Wayne's parents, and I really wish that he had shown it to the camera there, <laughs> because it would have uh, it would have made the later flashback scene that that much better. Although it's funny, um, in Sam Ham's script, uh, Joker and Batman are supposed to be the same age. So it's only because they cast Nicholson as the Joker that Burton was able to improvise the uh, Joker shot his parents thing. Who shoots his parents in the original one? In the original script? Oh, just just a just some nobody. Okay. First time I saw this in the theater, my friend's parents were laughing through it. And Whoa. I didn't really get it because you know I was like ten. I'm like, why is everybody laughing? Yeah. Here's here's a very pointless uh, scene to remind you that these actors were cast for this movie. <laughs> Black guy. Besides Billy D. Williams, of course. That was. Yeah, I mean, at this point, Billy D. Williams is just less than relevant to the movie, but they still stick him in for two seconds to remind you that he's supposed to show up uh, again. How great would it have been, by the way, if Batman 2 hadn't been Penguin and Catwoman, but Batman 2 had Two-Face because it was Batman 2? That would have been cool. They could have gotten Billy D. Williams in time. (laughs) Look at that wimpy sweater. That's the wimpiest he looks. <laughs> that's the wimpiest he looks in the whole movie. Wearing that sweater, wearing his glasses. Here's one of the few shots where we're reminded that the Joker's entire body is supposed to have been dyed white, not just his face. It's kind of weird that um, Bruce Wayne is supposed to he gets alerted that Vicky Vale is showing up for a meeting um, that he didn't schedule. So something must be up. And yet he waits long enough to make his appearances as Batman for everyone in the museum to get gassed to death. <laughs> How courteous of him. <laughs> He's like, well, geez. We missed the black guy notice, but um, they could have just knocked him out. Yeah. He's almost like it would be a big, it would be a huge hassle to have to save everyone in the museum from Joker. I'm just gonna wait until it's basic. Can you imagine how big of a action sequence that would have been? I mean, I would have loved to hear Burton be like, "Well, you know, <laughs> he didn't care that much." Nope. And the neat thing about the action sequences, um, up until this point, because when she does get rescued, it's going to turn into the the car chase, but. Um, even just the rescue of her as it happens, it happens very quickly and it happens with a kind of cartoon logic that Burton was really good at, like in Beetlejuice and Pee Wee. Black people and white people having lunch together <laughs> behind Kim Basinger. Uh, the penalty is death. 
What's also interesting about this is the Joker still is uh, uh, sexually interested in women versus Dark yeah, Knight, that's... where he's sort of asexual. And well, that wasn't just, um, you know, I mean, that was in the comics too. I mean, Joker <laughs> really didn't. I mean, I think he had a. That's mall. true. I think he had a hench girl mall on. Um, well, on the cartoon, so... yeah. And in the cartoon, yeah. But he um, didn't ever in the comic until no, after I mean, the really cartoon. Really, he was not, shall we say, a sexual presence in the uh, in the comic books in any but, de- any decade, really. No, but Jack Nicholson, on the other hand, I'm sure was. Jack Nicholson insisted. <laughs> He's a party man. What can you say? <laughs> uh, well, that just worked out perfectly. People give. Um, you know, people also give this movie shit for the Prince songs, but you got to admit, if the Joker were a music lover, he would listen to Prince. Right. And I actually listened to the Batman soundtrack, the Prince one, a couple weeks ago. Uh-huh. There are a couple really good songs on oh, there. Yeah. Like, Vicky Waiting is great. <laughs> Even this song is just... Yeah, oh yeah, this is just perfect. Right. If Christopher Nolan were, you know, an eighth of the, the director Tim Burton were, he would have thought to put this in it. <laughs> Yeah. He also would have hired Michael Keaton to do the voice, but unless, besides that. Okay, and let's just get deep for a second. Um, you've got a comic book character defacing high art. <laughs> that is so clever. <laughs> that is such a clever idea. Again, kudos, Sam Hamm, for being that clever. Um, and, you know, the way, like, Tim Burton described the differences between the two characters at the time was that, like, you know, Batman's an introvert. Joker's an extrovert. Um, Batman is the type who focuses real intensely on something, and the Joker is just kind of an anarchist. And in this scene, I mean, when he starts talking to Vicky Vale, he's going to explain himself as kind of an avant-garde artist, which is another kind of it's it's a it's an original idea to this movie, but it works very well for the character that he would mm. cons- that he would consider himself like an ant you know andy andy warhol turned homicidal basically that's a francis bacon painting that he uh tells bob not to wreck um but yeah it's um it, it was it was another you know just like the uh the permanent smile um and just like the gangster background it's unique to the character for this movie but it it works great it was a really good idea no yeah, okay. Now he's going to turn on Percy Faith's theme to a summer place. The thing is, where does Joker get all of his gadgets? <laughs> yeah, he asks where Batman gets his wonderful toys for, but he has just as many uh, goofy novelties. It's another thing where it's just, you know, the car- the cartoon comic book logic of it is just so perfect that you don't want to question it and nor should you want to question it because if you wanted to question it you know the movie would be doing something wrong exactly so here you- it's kind of like the longest dialogue he scene he gets as the joker and he's kind of- where he's kind of explaining his philosophy here I always, I always love the line, uh, you know, we mustn't compare ourselves to regular people. We're artists. Because <laughs> I think that's how artistic people feel and think. If they wanted to go into a museum and deface the paintings, you know, <laughs> it would be their God-given right as artists. 
and it's only the laws of, and the social constructs of society that prevent them from doing so. You know that line about uh, he wants his face on the $1 bill? I remember in the comic book adaptation of, uh, of this movie that was put up by DC when he's raining the cash down on, on the... Uh, it's Yeah, it's his face on it. Yeah, it's his face, which would have been a great callback. It's too bad they didn't... Uh, I thought they did. Oh, that's right. They didn't. Yeah. Yeah. It's too bad they forgot to, or they ran out of time or something. Although I kind of like the idea that he was willing to pour that much real cash down on everyone just to kill them. (laughs) And here you've got, you know, his girlfriend who he's supposed to have disfigured. And I, in the Sam Ham script, when she does take off her mask, you don't see it. And it's supposed to be left. It's supposed to be left up to your imagination, how horrible it is. And, Boy, they really shouldn't have shown it uh, here. Yeah. They should have brought in some more hideous makeup artists because, um, oh my god, oh, it's so horrible. Oh, no, not really. It's not going to give anyone nightmares. No. It's kind of. Here's like- a huge logic leap. Or what is why he's asking her about Batman oh right <laughs> well because he knows that she's been doing stories on the Batman with but she hasn't taken any pictures yet so and there's that acid flower nice little joker toy there yeah Warren Scarron uh, came up with the idea that she would throw the water in his face um, almost as a self-defense. In the Sam Ham Ham script, for some weird reason, like, he asks her to do that. (laughs) And this is another scene where she's like... Now, that shot's been repeated in every superhero movie since this one. Yeah. Including Batman Begins, with no credit given to Batman. (laughs) Well, it's hard to copyright the idea of a superhero crashing through a skylight. But you know where it's from and everything. Of course, I think they do it the same year in the first Punisher, so. Where does he get those wonderful toys? Where do you get yours, dude? And now, of course, Batman's very wimpy here. He doesn't fight all the armed guys. (laughs) Yeah. So here we have this extremely lame chase. They improved this for the second one, the sort of chase through Oh, yeah, no, no, the Batman Returns uh, Batmobile chase is terrific. Um, This really isn't. And I think that, I mean, I still have a a great fondness for the Burton Batmobiles. Oh, no, the design is fantastic. They never should have changed it. No. They did for the Schumachers. Well, that was partially so they could make more toys, right? And yeah. because Joel Schumacher's an idiot, I mean. <laughs> we mustn't discount. I love how the Joker goons are just kind of firing their guns into the air. <laughs> Very cops and robbers. Now, what what good is having a neat car like that if you can't turn a sharp corner without yeah, I know. a grappling hook? <laughs> Ima- imagine one of the, imagine you, if you, you had did... to use a grappling hook every time you turned a corner. And it wasn't even that sharp of a corner. Right. Um, and here's where the sort of small set reveals itself. <laughs> that they sort of drive through everything you've seen. And uh, 
And I mean, and talk, now we're gonna... talk, talk about impractical. You get out of your car to run on foot <laughs> just cause. Well, there, there's a produce. Damn that produce. This is always, this is, as soon as they get out of the car, it becomes a really cool sequence. Oh, I disagree. I think, of... I think it gets even more awkward because then he has to go into the alley and do the kind but of... But you said that cool shields thing where you find out that he can, you know, oh, yeah. well, that's, talk into it. No, stop motion is always cool. You know, Gotham City is the only city in America that's over 50% alleyways. <laughs> Now we have the very 80s joke, which, um... <laughs> Women lying about their weight. <laughs> Here's a really bad, uh, doll shot. Little Batman and Kim Basinger dolls on a line. <laughs> Kim Basinger doll. There it goes. <laughs> Did you see the little feet move? Yeah. And now here we have the supernatural. I mean, he just fell on like that. That really should have hurt him, you know. And now Actually, we have. I never even noticed that so much as um, when these goons say like, uh, "Well, they're like no blood," and then they go, "Oh, it's body armor. Oh, he's human after all." Like, wow, they really didn't know he was. Human. <laughs> they really didn't know he was a guy in a suit. <laughs> all right, I'll kind of buy it. Sure. Hey, Joker's going to be pissed at you when you kill his would-be girlfriend there, guys. Right. These were the shots that they based, John Peters basically ordered made so they could put it in the trailer. <laughs> Just kicking dudes, punching dudes. <laughs> and because it's the 80s... <sighs> fucking ninja. Now... In the new one, of course, Batman's a ninja, and they, you know, they yeah. never say where he gets his training in this one. But what I find so amusing is after setting that up for the entire first movie, in the second movie, anybody can give Batman a fight, really, as long as the movie needs it. It's true. This is the, you know, I mean, the the gap of time between this whole sequence from the point where he crashed in through the window and when we saw him at Axis Chemical, it was like another good half hour. So, yeah. and, you know, after after this sequence, I mean, after they get to the Batcave, it's going to be another lengthy amount of time before he shows up again in the Batwing. So when you think about it, Batman only has kind of three real sequences to show off in, and this is the second. And it only goes on so long because John Peters, you know, demanded it. Continuity. He's holding up the walkie-talkie. <laughs> well, he also just used his regular Michael Keaton voice there. This shot always... This is... I mean, it's so expressionistic that... Um, yeah, this is one of the more Tim Burton-y shots. It's amazing that he got it in, I think. You feel, you feel like he's about to run over Jack Skellington. It also makes the movie, you know, which is really contained to a lot of sets, feel a lot bigger. 
for a little bit. Yeah, because like if Gotham City is on an island, kind of like Manhattan Island, then how do they get to the outer boroughs <laughs> where, <laughs> where, Main Man- where Wayne Manor is located? It's like they must have had to drive for a little while before they got out of the city and into the sticks. How far? We don't know. Doesn't matter. The flow just keeps on flowing. It's a really cool driving sequence is, mm-hmm. is what matters. You know? Right. And it's just shots of seeing this badass looking car just zooming along and that's all. Oh, and of course, Danny Elfman's music is really fantastic right. here. I think, I think this track is called Descent into Mystery. And has that nice flourish when he zooms into the Batcave. That I think which he reuses for the finale. Yeah, Uh it's sort of the Batman Victorious theme. Right, and I think it's. I think they even used it for the, uh, if not Returns, then the Forever trailer. The specific piece. And here we see the bat cave for the first time. And this is this is just one of those things where it's like, you know, you're going to see Batman the movie in 1989. You expect to see certain things and you're wondering how they're going to look. And this is just like, wow, really kind of what you were hoping for as far as being, you know, impressive an impressive yeah. looking big budgeted version of something that's old and familiar. Which is what I find interesting about the new ones is the bat cave was lame. Yeah, very lame. It's even more like a cave than this is. <laughs> because it's real, man. It's real life. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is just awesome and not realistic. But, oh, here, here's where you should be able to figure out if you hadn't by now that um, him, <laughs> him and uh, Bruce Wayne are the same person. He even does a little bit of detectiving, you know. He figured out he's smart. He figured out that uh, what the how the Joker was getting people to use different hair care products. Yeah, I always uh, how they always make a big deal about what a great detective Batman is. I always I'm, I never can figure it out. Yeah, it's it's just kind of an artifact of him having been published in Detective Comics back in. Uh, Back in 1939 or 40. Of course, he's doing he's doing more work here than he ever did in the Nolan movies, where he, in the first one, he he goes after somebody. Not he doesn't try and help anyone. He goes after a specific target, yeah. which is not the same thing as helping people. And I, you have a little bit. The dialogue between him and Basinger is actually all right here because it's pointing up the ambiguity of, it, it's pointing up the ambiguity of how people feel about him. Right. At this point, you know, her saying. Some people think you're as dangerous as the Joker, and he's like, "What people?" <laughs> he's 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 so offended that anyone could even think that about him. And I mean, oh, and here's the insinuation that he rapes her. <laughs> there is one. More, uh, there is one more thing I want from you. What's that? Yeah. And and she's and she's uh, ass up <laughs> the next, <laughs> next morning on her bed. Like that's 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 not a subtle insinuation. The um. Clutching her breasts, even. He'd been there before, lady. You just don't know it yet. Um, hey, Robert Wall, I forgot you were in this movie. Black woman. Um, 
what was I going to say? Oh, the height thing. I mean, there's always something about the height. Michael Keaton was too short. Apparently Christian Bale's tall enough because he's perfect. But um, I think Val Kilmer was tall enough, and obviously George Clooney's Keaton's height are shorter. But, I mean, that scene with Vicky Vale, he's clearly disturbing regardless of his height. So Yeah, it's very Phantom of the Opera. Your Joker repeats his smashing a TV in anger bit. Stolen from Elvis, of course. There's a there's an alternate take of this uh, of this line that they used in the trailer, because in the in the trailer he does that I've given a name to my pain line, but he's loading his gun as he says yeah. it. I feel like if they hadn't shown Joker here, it would have given him more of a more gravity to when he pops up in Vicky Vale's apartment in the next scene, because then it would have been a little right. before we'd seen him. You know, unfortunately, the problem is, I mean, I've seen this movie in the theater a couple of times, and uh, the audience kind of tends to turn on Keaton and Basinger. I mean, Basinger, I can't blame him, but you kind of get this vibe going in the audience where it's like we're, you know, the excitement level perks up when Nicholson shows up and then it slinks back down when it's just Keaton. So, I don't know. I think they I think they should have cut uh, Nicholson there, but he probably had some stipulation in his contract about screen time. <laughs> Here's the best scene in the movie, um, or sequence, I should say, because it's really like two scenes. It's this scene between Keaton and Basinger, and then it's another scene where uh, Nicholson shows up. But this is like the blue velvet sequence of the picture, <laughs> the picture because it's the most psychotic, and you've got Michael Keaton at his most conflicted and psychotic. And, uh, yeah, he takes off his glasses. Oh, oh, Kim Basinger, she's so hurt, even though she she gave it to him on on the first date. She doesn't... She got her drunk, man. (laughs) She's not just some cheap floozy, you know. But everybody, everybody, of course, laughs when he tells her to, uh, you know, shut the hell up. (laughs) She's a nice girl. He likes her a lot, but for right now, shut up. See, what I like is before they go to this shot of him, he has that like psychotic little thing where he decides he's going to push her down. I like that. Yeah, it's it's a little more psychotic. Uh, it's more psychotic than I thought about actually. The fact that he just shoves her down there, and this is almost like a Keaton comedy routine because it is funny that he can't get it out but i mean at the same time it kind of points up his um his psychosis because it's like having to admit that you're an alcoholic or something right (laughs) having to admit that you've got a problem (laughs) but uh but in uh his review of jackie brown roger ebert talked about how much he loved how sam jackson thinks for a second Mm-hmm. Now, my question is, if he loves that kind of thing, why didn't he love this scene? Because you can actually see Keaton taking the breaks to think about what he's going to say to her, how to present his case to her. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's just fantastic. Yeah, and it's kind of hinted at in the dialogue here where he says, you know how normal people get up and go to work? Um, there's a call. <laughs> there's a callback to that later 
um, where he's telling Basinger that he's got to go fight the Joker. And he says, you know, I want to be with you, but he's out there right now and I've got to go to work. <laughs> I love the idea that he thinks of being Batman as a job <laughs> and not, <laughs> not, not necessarily one that he wants to do, but it's just like a job that you get up and, you know, you eat your, Cheerio, right. eat your Cheerios and then you go be Batman because that's your living. So, yeah, here Keaton doesn't have his mask on, and he actually gets to play off of being around the Joker. And yeah. uh, Nicholson's makeup never looks better than in this scene. It's something to do with the, the natural daylight coming in. In fact, it's probably not even natural, but, you know, it's supposed to be yeah. natural my light. Pro- one of my problems with this has always been Pratt's photography. It's, it's very flat and That's sort of lifeless. True. Yeah, I mean, certainly compared to Burton's regular DP, uh, Stephen Japatsky, or whatever that Polish name is. Yeah, they. I mean, he certainly gets him by the second one. And... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you certainly need to shoot the light on Nicholson, right, to get that makeup looking not so much like pancake makeup. Right. But, uh, I think here it looks quite good. Yeah. By the way... Um, I was never sure. I think when I saw this as a kid, I was pretty sure that this was implying that the Joker threw uh, Alicia out the window. <laughs> but um, I don't know. Maybe she did commit suicide because he defaced her so horribly. Right. You can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. By the way, it was one of Joseph Stalin's uh, favorite favorite phrases. Yes. Well, references to Stalin's lines and things like that are certainly not going to be in Christopher Nolan movies. I'm sure, I doubt. No one knows who Stalin was. The, uh, the joke quotes Shakespeare in the parade uh, scene. I'll point it out where it happens. Oh, and he speaks French here. That's right. Bruce Wayne, Nespa. He's sophisticated. That's the thing. He's funny, you know? The Joker should be funny. Right. <laughs> I know who you are. What a layered, What a layered statement, isn't it? I mean, does that mean he knows that he's Jack Napier? I mean... He's not the only one, but what is it? he knows who he is deep down inside. Like because from one from right. one one freak to another, he knows who he is. And that was the thing I noticed the last time I saw this is how much I wanted Batman and Joker scenes. And this is kind of the only kind of Batman and Joker scene you get before the end, really. Right in, um, the, in the bell tower. In the bell tower, and it's just because Keaton and Nicholson really work really well together, and you never get to see them. They have a mean way with the eyebrows. I never knew what the hell he said when he smashes this vase here, but it's actually, um, you know, he made mistakes, and then he got his lights knocked out. Now you want to get nuts. But it's kind of impossible to hear what he's saying the first time you see it. Got to have those subtitles turned on. (laughs) That's a really tiny gun. And there it is. Yeah, I love how on repeat viewings you kind of get the impression that uh, he might have remembered the first time uh, Jack Napier said that to him. And he goes, what? Like, yeah, sounds so familiar. The first time's just like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> now, I think in the novelization he has the armor on under his suit or something. It's not a... Uh... Oh, you know that he's got that... Uh... Oh, he's got no, the no. He's not, got the Batman not, armor on. Not the plate, yeah. Right. That's that's something you kind of have to be a kid to buy. But um, 
I love Nickel. I love uh, Elfman's music accompanying the Joker's poem here. By the way, it, so in the original script, um, at this point, Joker was supposed to kidnap Vicky Vale, and then Bruce Wayne changes into the bat suit like on a rooftop, and then he rides a horse <laughs> that he steals from some horse cop, and then in he his ch- cape. Uh, yeah, and he chases her, and then they run into a circus. And that's where Robin was going to be introduced when they were planning on introducing Robin in this movie. Mm-hmm. And thank God, Burton and <laughs> Burton and uh, Sam Hammer just like that's too much. <laughs> because if they had decided to do that, you wouldn't have had this great ending where the uh, the severed hand pops out, which is just pure Tim Burton, black guy, <laughs> pure Beetlejuice. But that, he might have been working there earlier, so yeah, it doesn't count. There you go, a nice old microfiche machine. So the entire office is 1940s, but they've got a microfiche machine back in the uh, room here. Well, yeah, but, you know, by today's modern technology, it's, uh, well, I don't know. Libraries still do have microfiche machines, but only because they can't be bothered to take them out. A detail detail that was really nice in the script that I wish they had taken the time to include was the idea that... um, uh, um, Commissioner Gordon was seen with Bruce Wayne as a child at the time of the murder, like comforting him. Right. Well, you know, there's also um... nice either relationship together because he really have no way of knowing what their relationship might be, except that they're two well-known public officials who would know each other that way. The um, the other thing that was really nice, I don't know if it was in the script or in the novelization, is that the reason he's becoming Batman now is, is because his fa- he's 35 and his father was 35 when he was killed. Oh, wow, I never knew that. And so he's sort of been spending his time preparing, and this is when he's going to start. And that's one of the big things is that a 35-year-old Batman is too old. In the comic books, Batman is eternally 29, mm-hmm. which makes him really pervy with some of the kids, but whatever. Um, and then, you know, Christian Bale was supposed to be a younger type guy or something. Of course, given how long it takes them to make Batman movies now, Christian Bale will probably be 42. (laughs) Yeah. How long will it take to get over the loss of Heath Ledger? How long does the grieving period go on? Until they just drive a truck full of money up to Christopher Nolan's. And... Great match shot. Yep. You can't even tell where it ends on the right, left side of the screen, which is nice. Here, here's Tim Burton's cleverest use of the uh, the multiple <laughs> monitors thing. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm pretty sure this is techni- technically impossible. Right, you know? right, right. <laughs> but, you know, the Joker is just, like, breaking the fourth wall practically with this, uh, you know, his ability to... Uh, to slide the picture over <laughs> it's so funny though and I, and I love I love the idea of him having a fireside chat <laughs> like he's like he's FDR or something and they're looking to and they're looking to the to their left so they can see him on the monitor next to them it's so visually clever and the movie I mean some the script plays this up more but um one of the another clever sam ham idea is that because batman and joker are both new in town like people don't quite know which black lady which one of them is more dangerous right so this is the joker's you know appeal to peace is uh 
his peace offering, his saying that, you know, Batman is the real terrorist, he even calls him a terrorist. I mean, that's something that, like, you know... Black guy behind Billy D. Williams. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so... Complete. Do they call... They call him a terrorist in Dark Knight, right? That's the key word to make sure you know he's a bad guy. Yeah, and the Joker makes Al-Qaeda videos and, and whatnot. Right. But, the, the you know, pre-9-11, this was being very clever with the... Uh, man, I love that black turtleneck. I now, love... that's the cool nerd out. And he's wearing jeans, so you yeah. know he's, like, kind of relaxed, but still... Yeah, this is the coolest... Uh, this is the coolest that he looks. The, the cool, nerdiest look that he's got. I actually think that's the costume that you used to get on your Bruce Wayne action figure. That you put the Batman armor on over. The turtleneck, huh? Yeah. And now, of course, my the thing that always bugs me about this is he pauses him with his eyes closed. Mm-hmm. Like, really? It's a bad pause? Come on. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then when he, when we come back to it, he's got his eyes open. Does he? I don't know. I wasn't even going to say that. I love these old police reports. It's an ancient police report in an, a Summit uh, file folder. Yeah. Another, another, uh, another dating of the movie that they couldn't have foreseen, considering they wanted their movie to be, uh, you know, somewhere a weird amalgamation of the 40s and the 80s. But the newspaper clippings, yeah. And here you got, you know, the uh, the flashback to the murder, and um, it's got, the God, same. God, it's more effective than the. Oh yeah, well. <laughs> than Batman. Don't begins. let's not get started on that. But that poster for Footlight Frenzy is actually, I don't know if it's a mis- It's got to be a mistake, but that's the same poster that's in the modern Monarch Theater is Footlight Frenzy, at the beginning of the movie. Wow, popular show. Wonder if that's a real well, yeah. movie. Probably not. This is this is I mean this is a very uh you know expressionist thing as opposed to being sort of realistic it's more like a memory yeah, it's like a nightmare all slow motion know? right everybody walks in step and they actually wanted Adam West <laughs> to play the father here which I could not believe <laughs> Hey Adam West wanted to be Batman in this movie But yeah I, it's just you know this is you know this is the way that this scene should have been done and I can't really, in fact, I won't defend the uh, the idea of um, the Joker being the original murderer of uh, Batman's parents. But, um, oh, these falling pearls. There's a panel in The Dark Knight Returns of uh, Batman's mom's pearls hitting the ground. I think that's where they lifted that for this sequence. But um, the, th- the, the thing that kind of hurts it about the Joker being the original murderer is that it kind of makes it more about jack napier in this scene Mm -hmm. and it is for bruce wayne and his parents but what are you gonna do they hired some nicholson-y look-alike and they hired some uh uh walter uh you know bob the goon look-alike to look younger tracy walter oh well wait that's supposed to be bob the goon i didn't know that oh i always figured oh okay i mean i always figured because he looks enough like Tracy Walter. Continuity. He's got his eyes open. Oh, yeah, he does. Look at that. And here's the scene that they came up with just because um, it's funny. Tim Burton has been quoted, but probably in the same book that I read the other quotes from, as saying, like, yeah, people gave me a lot of crap for the fact that Vicki Vale doesn't really react <laughs> to the fact that, um, to the fact that uh, she 
discovered who Batman is and people were like, so did she already know? Did she figure it out? And and in the scene where she's at the microfilm machine with um, with Robert Wall, it, she kind of does get this expression like she did know, like she figured it out in that moment just from looking at the old article. But um, no, what he, what he said was, um, he said at the time I just thought, you know what, this, that's just a lot of comic book bullshit. I don't really care. <laughs> like, <laughs> like who really cares about the dramatic tension between uh, <laughs> between the two of them? And of course, the second movie has a great reference to this scene of, it's like, hey, it's like, hey, oh, hi, Vicky. Look, you're in the Batcave. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Alfred, for just bringing yeah. you into the freaking Batcave. <laughs> yeah. Batman Returns even goes out of its way to make fun of um, Kim Basinger when. Mm. Uh, Kim, when uh, Keaton mentions his old girlfriend uh, Vicky, and he just says the name Vicky to Michelle Pfeiffer, and she she laughs and goes, "Vicky, well, let me guess, ice skater or stewardess?" <laughs> and he has to go, uh, "No, she was a you know photojournalist. She wore glasses sometimes because <laughs> she's smart. Yeah, she were she wasn't just some bimbo, despite being named Vicky Vale. I guess we should mention Vicky Vale was a real character from the comics, but." I mean, they kept trying to bring back over the time um, of this coming out just so she'd actually be in the comics. But in the original uh, Tom Mankiewicz script, it was the character Silver St. Cloud, who's sort of the love of Bruce Wayne's life, and they couldn't have a character in the movie named Silver St. Cloud because it was too absurd. <laughs> but actually, um, during this sequence, let me just mention that in the last uh, five years or so, I'd say that there there have been a couple uh, comic books that deal with the sort of absurdity of Batman as a character without um, showing it disrespect. Really, um, it's kind of hard to explain, but like it's what? like the well, Batman No, no, not that. Um, I'm trying to think, uh, Batman Dark Detective, which is. This is Batman killing people, by the way. He's just blowing yeah. the fuck up. But we don't see it, as opposed to Batman Returns, where he blows some guy up with dynamite. <laughs> I mean, this is just blowing up a really uh, elaborate um, miniature, which is just beautiful. I mean, look at that. I mean, mm-hmm. God. But, um, no, it was Batman Dark Detective, which actually deals with that, since Batman is, you know, he's do- he's got a 12-year-old's oath, He's sort of emotionally <laughs> retarded, a twelve-year-old. Like he's, yeah. you know, his, his expectations of romance are a twelve-year-old's expectations from seeing a movie, you know. And it's like he's got to grow up. Up in the air, Junior Birdman. I used to sing that song at summer camp. <laughs> up in the air, Junior Birdman. Up in the air, upside down. Up in the air, Junior Birdman, with your nose right to the ground. And here's some more Prince music. And some very Tim Burton-y looking lens. <laughs> Definitely taken straight from his sketchbook. Now, I swear I... that in the um, novelization, mm-hmm. the balloons are like famous balloons. Like, there's like a Charlie Brown balloon or something. I mean, it's just like... Yeah, but that would have been... That's something you could yeah. do in, in the novelization, and it would have been a licensing nightmare. Exactly. Yeah, I think when I also, saw this... Also, I remember in the script and in the novelization, the idea was that um, Joker didn't just have these balloons laying around or anything. He actually like broke into the warehouse where they were being kept and uh, filled them up with poison. So 
They told okay. they told you they gave you the logistics of that. But even with the logistics, it's just like you know, come on, the pol- nobody calls the police. <laughs> Well, well they, don't forget, the police didn't do anything while he was killing that one guy, I mean. Oh, yeah. Gotham's... Uh, and now we're back to the, the sort of single set here. Yeah, Tim Burton has sort of said that he regrets not having more extras <laughs> in this, because maybe it's not... Maybe there should be more people if it were a real city, but who cares? You get the point. The point comes across, and I, and I love Nicholson's dance. <laughs> I, I loved it even more after after reading that like they weren't even syncing it up to the Prince song <laughs> that he was just making up some some dance without music <laughs> and then they cut it to the music after the fact that just made it even better somehow now I had read some somewhere recently that I mean Batman was supposed to be a because pr- Prince was you know, on top of the world at this point. And, um, the Warner brothers actually saw Batman as a cross licensing promotion on the level of purple rain. That like the selling point of Batman was not that it was a Batman movie, but that it was a print. Wow. What is up with this shot? Oh, that's like the one composite Matt, uh, and actors shot with the, uh, parade. And it's actually the only, it's, it's like the most elaborate one of the whole sequence. And I love it. But anyway, my copy had some awkward lighting to it. No, I mean, that's just the shot. Okay. That's just the shot, but it's, it's like now the bat wing, which I have very mixed feelings about. Yeah. It's, I know what you mean because like the sequence works, but when before or after, except maybe on the cartoon show, did Batman ever fly around in a freaking jet? <laughs> Why does he need it? Why does he yeah, need yeah. it? Except for, you know, except to, like, cut balloon strings between right. the <laughs> I remember watching this uh, with my dad once on TV, and, like, my dad got real disgusted by it. Like, the, the shot. <laughs> shots of people grabbing for money because he was like you know who's more money grubbing than hollywood and here they are <laughs> and here they are just taking a dump on the little you know commoners for being so greedy like hollywood isn't greedy I, th- I think you kind of had to have been of a certain age when this movie came out to remember the huge kind of unprecedented marketing blitz that it had to, to right. have, have that kind of animosity towards it <laughs> Well, I found it, uh, I was reading a quote today that Kevin Smith was talking fondly about the summer of 1989 as the Batman craze, and, you know, he's talking fondly about something Tim Burton did, and the two of them sort of bicker whenever they have the chance through the press now. Well, actually, Tim Burton doesn't bother with it. <laughs> True. Kevin Smith just likes to complain, and, you know, he couldn't even fit into the seat of the Batwing, so <laughs> he just shut his mouth. You'd think she'd worry about the gas. Oh, yeah. Now she is. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Em. I'm sort of confused what she's doing there. She just found out her boyfriend was Batman, and the first thing <laughs> she does is... I gotta go take pictures she, of the show. Did she tell Robert Wall about it? Like that's, they, a, that's a scene yeah. we need, where they start hanging out. Was that woman just kissing the money? No, they uh, like clutching it to Okay, mouth. okay. Oh, wow, he's got a Gotham Globe press thing. That's, uh... 
Not that it makes sense that Robert Wall could protect himself from poison gas by holding one of those face mask things that you see Asian people uh, wearing sometimes over his mouth. They're germ conscious. Yeah, I mean, and these these batwing shots, I mean, you can tell with every single one of them that it's just a little puppet Batman yeah. in the cockpit, except for the close-ups, and that's the other reason. But but then you have these awesome aerial right. you know, <laughs> shots. And, now, these and are shot, composites, oh, too. And like this, this is like, this, this, yeah. is total, this is like Star Wars, but with buildings, you know, right. instead of the Death Star. <laughs> the camera tracking through the... You get some really nice composites here of miniature and... Uh... These have got to be some painful deaths, though, the fact that these goons are falling yeah. and hitting lights and stuff. I feel a little bad for him. Now, has he done the cool... No, he's got to get the balloons first. I never quite understood why the balloons would sort of seem to inflate as the gas was coming out of them. But I... Well, actually, no, now that I think about it, it's because they were they must have had helium in them in the first place, and then the gas started pumping through them. Listen to me figuring out the science of mm -hmm. this. That was nice of him. Robert Wall was supposed to die uh, in the original script. I don't know if he died in the novelization. but I can't remember. Poor guy never made it back for a sequel, though. Well, Tim Burton. Look at that. <laughs> Look at that gizmo there. That's just perfect for this. What else are you going to use it for? Doesn't matter. <laughs> It's just handy to have around in, in this kind See, of See, if this were a Marvel movie, Superman would have come in and gotten the balloons for him. For some yeah. synergy between properties. Right, to set up the later Batman-Superman movie. But you got to remember, at this point, they didn't worry about that shit. That's a beautiful shot, regardless yeah. of model or whatever. Yeah, they're all, they're all beautiful competition models and miniatures and matte painting shots. Gotham now here we go. City, man. These idiot people are still grabbing for money, even though we just tried to gas them to death. And here's a nice little moment of insanity where he kills his, his right-hand man, and it's like, it's something that, you know, nobody sees coming. Right. And, you know, the you know Heath Ledger's Joker could do all the disappearing pencil tricks he wants, but he never does anything unpredictable the way that this is just a... <laughs> unpredictable kind of short right. short wired uh, moment from the joker well i mean that's sort of the yeah and i loved ledger's performance as the joker but it's like you know the poor guy you know he won an oscar for dying that's that's great yeah there you go the first bat signal okay <laughs> the the third wall breaking bat signal shot because i mean this Batman does not, Michael Keaton's Batman does not strike you as having any sort of uh, fetishization of his symbol like the uh, new one does. So none of this makes sense in some ways. Oh, I forgot to mention, uh, when the Joker quotes Shakespeare, it's when he first sees the Batwing in the air and he says, Winged Bat who flies through the night and finds me uh, ready. It's a paraphrase of a Shakespeare line. They actually might have Shakespeare paraphrasing in a Nolan movie. I can see that. Referencing Joseph Stalin, on the other hand, I mean, expecting your audience to know who that is? Come on. <laughs> That's like having a fireside chat. I mean... Had Top Gun come out uh, before 
The first yes. yes. Okay. Well, this is very Top Gun. <laughs> but it's also, but it's it, also very Tim Burton cartoonish. I mean, this this, it, this this whole this whole conflict here, where all the bullets happen to miss him, and then he pulls out but, the gun that couldn't I, possibly have been. I down. swear, I saw this in a movie a couple of years ago. Except they were like on a street, and um, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Wasn't it the Dark Knight? Didn't they rip this off for the Dark Knight? Oh, maybe. And like in, oh. instead of a instead of a bat plane, it was something like a like a bat cycle. Oh yeah, I think so. Huh. And they had a really lame name for the bat cycle, like Bat Pod. Yeah, I think <laughs> I, I think I think we saw that movie. Oh, the Bat Pod. Oh. These miniature shots aren't very good, especially those cars, but um, whatever. It's over fairly yeah. quickly. Yeah. And they're not, I mean, they're not totally terrible. They can't, all, just, they can't all be perfect, as most of them are. It's not um, believable the streets would be clear at this point either. But <laughs> yeah. We're sort of to the, you know, why can't she find him? Where is he? That doesn't make any sense at all. Um, yeah. You know, I can't remember what happens to Vicky Vale at this point in the script, but in the script, by the time Joker and Batman get up to the top of the bell tower, um, she's not there. So he either rescues her before he gets her up there, or she's just not here in the first place. But I think it was the fact she was uh, uh, sucking John Peter's cock that got her into the mix last uh, 20 minutes. Doesn't she sue people a lot? I have no opinion of what he's saying right now, everyone. <laughs> what, the Joker? Oh, no, oh. you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. You and Alec Baldwin are going to be waiting in the same hallway, getting sued by Kim Basinger for something. I'll take them all. Uh, <laughs> this is usually where they cut the commercial uh, <laughs> when this is on TV. When he's I, out of the bat. I love the uh, the sort of beat up Batman makeup here. <laughs> yeah, the bruised uh, Batman. And this is uh, this is a sequence that Burton tells anecdotes about, where like he's telling about how the script had just completely unraveled at this point, and like nobody knew how the movie was going to end. <laughs> And he he says he remembers shooting Nicholson in this scene, and Nicholson is asking him like, "Why am I going up the steps?" And he's like, "I don't know, Jack. I'll, I'll tell you when you get there." <laughs> now, I mean, we gotta we gotta point out that Nicholson and Burton got along really well on this, and uh, yeah, and then did Mars Attacks. Uh, then did Mars Attacks, and of course there was the rumor that I was giddy about that they were going to do a spinoff with the car dealer, <laughs> and. Um, you know, even though Burton and Nick, uh, Keaton haven't worked together, there was at one point Keaton was going to be in Willy Wonka, and then Johnny Depp decided that he needed to add that to his whatever he's adding to, and Burton shucked the idea of putting Keaton in it, which yeah. is... I mean, rest assured, if this movie had been made a few years later, uh, Depp would have been the Joker. And there wouldn't have been a Batman in the movie. In fact, I think that'd be amusing if Depp and Burton made a Batmanless Batman movie. A Batmanless Batman movie. <laughs> what if What if Batman Three, uh, Batman Dark Knight Three, or whatever, is really just the Joker starring Johnny Depp, di- directed by Oh Black Cop, directed by uh, Tim Burton? There'd be more black people in it otherwise than uh, 
if Nolan were still in charge. So now the police show up. And and so do the uh, ambulances. <laughs> but everybody's gone. Every <laughs> where's all the dead bodies? Actually, that is uh, <laughs> one of the, one of the things I think I would have added if I were making this movie is um, have some dead bodies uh, when Joker is uh, taunting Batman. I mean that that would have been maybe a little too grim for a PG thirteen movie, but it would have been neat. And it is kind of weird how there's no dead bodies after that happens. Oh, look at Pratt's photography here. It's so messy. Oh. That one there especially. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of too bad. Yeah. I mean, granted it's tricky that they have to be up in this bell tower that's just a set and make it seem like it's the night, you know. Right. 100 feet up or whatever. Still it's And it's like where where is their light coming from? Nowhere. <laughs> there wouldn't be light coming from anywhere up there. Yep. I love how um, Commissioner Gordon makes like he's going to try to move that bell. So, <laughs> yeah, that's going to do something. That's not going to happen there, buddy. <laughs> None of the he's cop- just testing it. <laughs> None of the cops are even going to try to help him on that one. Well, no, they're all corrupt still. I mean, like they haven't been cleaned up really. And he tells them to put some searchlights up there so that there can be a logical light source and I like the other thing is that in this one Harvey Dent is the crusading DA who's going to clean up Gotham City same as in Dark Knight yeah that's true um so here we've got these goons that couldn't possibly have been up there but they are because John Peters knows how to produce an action movie darn it and you know some kind of stopwatch has gone off where he's got to happen uh, a fight scene here. The and thing is, though, I mean... It's real tedious. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I still think that in this one, they still had a real cape on the Batsuit, so... Well, there's not, still something kind of... It's not bad. Least. It's just pointless. Well, I mean, this is idiotic, of course, except, I mean... It's helped by the goofy music, though, <laughs> by the by Danny Elfman's waltz. Makes it a little more fun to intercut. And that's it psychotic between the Joker Michael Keaton and shot there. Is nice. <laughs> yeah, and of course Keaton still got the psychotic look in his eyes. Now, why they don't they don't think like getting Michael Keaton to play the Riddler in one of the new ones wouldn't be a good idea or something like that, but whatever. Not uh, because it would remind people that there were Batman movies before Christopher Nolan. <laughs> he kills this guy, right? Uh, yeah, the big he, guy? He, yeah, this, yeah, the black goon here. He tosses him down. Is that Teeny Lister? Is he scary <laughs> black guy? <laughs> um, no, but he he tosses him down the. Uh, down the shaft, right? He he does something remarkably acrobatic, <laughs> which is <laughs> fl- throw him down the uh, down the shaft with his legs, even though he's like a you know, two hundred and fifty pounds of muscle goon. Another little Joker toy, and another little kind of funny reminder of how psychotic he is. <laughs> that bang flag. And that's all great stuff because I mean, you just you know, just like 
Batman does stuff that you don't need to know how it happened. Right. But you don't care to question it. So too can the Joker. And that's the kind of, you know, that's, that might be what Tim Burton brought the most of in terms of sensibility to this movie is the kind of exciting feeling that anything can happen. Although he was pretty, I mean, he, in another interview, um, and this was like a print interview in Cinefantastique or something, he was saying like, you know, Batman's going to do impressive stuff, but we don't ever want to give the impression that he's magical or anything. Right. Like you might see him swinging out on his bat rope over Gotham City, but, you know, we'll show him firing the rope. And then, of course, there weren't any shots of him swinging on a rope in this movie, <laughs> even though he does use the grappling hook. And the grappling hook probably got integrated into Batman uh, comic books and stuff. I know it at least got integrated into the cartoon a lot after uh, after his heavy use of a grappling hook in, in this movie. We just missed Batman murdering someone. <laughs> shame, shame. Not in cold blood, though, but he just killed was, someone. It wasn't a person. It was a doll. He threw a doll. Frank down. Miller doesn't even have Batman killing people. Yeah. Actually, I don't think Batman's allowed to kill anybody in the comics. I mean, just rubber bullets. Honest. Now, Joker at his most Liberace-esque. There's the scene where she's picking lint off her lip that apparently in one version looks more like she's enjoying it than not or something. I didn't know about that, but I kind of forgot about how it's implied that she's going to go down on the Joker here. Yeah. <laughs> you forgot about that? I remember in the theater. Well, I, always, like well, I always remember when I see it, but I forgot about it this time. And it's... Yeah, it's probably definitely the most sexually suggestive thing, more so than the implied rape from earlier. She had just made nine and a half weeks, so you know, come on. She was oh. not exactly a family friendly leading lady. Half weeks with a joker. And she's also taller than Jack Nicholson. Okay, but here's this. Yeah. He drops his Batman voice and he's completely psychotic now. And you got this banter which is just like i mean you pointed it out in your review yeah. it's just it's, it's this, just magical so mad it re, it's truly like just exactly like batman and the joker bantering in a comic book as they always do except here you're really seeing it come to life yeah. and maybe you know they couldn't sustain a whole movie with this or something and i know whatever. it's i know it's like on i some, just wish it were three minutes longer yeah i wish it were just a little bit longer because on, it, it is so great, but on some level, maybe it's, you know, the withholding of it that makes it even better. And at this point, you have uh, Blood on the Joker, which is kind of, you know, pushing that PG-13 yeah. rules of engagement thing. And you know how he says here that, you know, he sort of somehow knows that he was the one who killed Batman's parents? You know, he says, um, I was just a I kid. I was a kid, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's just a problem of the production and how, you know, fucked up everything got at the end. But I always thought it would be funny if they edited it so that, like, he didn't say that and it was just Batman telling him, you killed my parents. And he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, like, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. And then it would be even better if they hadn't had the Joker be the one who killed his parents and Batman is just projecting it onto him. <laughs> like he's 
like Batman has completely flipped his lid and he's just telling the Joker that he was the one who killed his parents and, and the Joker's like, I don't know what you're talking about. You, you, you're forgetting that Batman's not insane. He's just really cool. But this, You've seen the no, Dark Knight. But Burton, I mean, oh. the interviews that he did, that Burton did, Burton got that Batman was insane and that's a big reason why this movie is as good as it is. Right. So did Sam Ham. Sam Ham was quoted as saying, "Like I started from the premise that here you have a guy who's insane." I love I love the uh, the aerial shot uh, that's coming I up. Mean, did you remember when Batman Begins came out? Forbes did a thing about how much it would cost to turn yourself into Batman, and you I, wouldn't need to have as much money as about that, yeah. Bruce Wayne supposedly had. It forgets the point that the guy's check, a check the freaking the, nutcase. I love the lighting there. Pratt got it right in that shot. Yeah. Clasps his fist like that. It looks excellent. But yeah, it would cost so much freaking money. <laughs> the more well, you... no, they actually decided it wouldn't cost that much. Oh, oh. Like, reasonably speaking, it wouldn't cost that much. Like, right. you wouldn't have to be a billionaire if you were a millionaire. Right, but it's, 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 it's just that you would get shot after two weeks. Right, you get shot, you know, you gravity might get a hold of you at some point, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, even even the idea that uh, Batman and Kim Basinger are holding on to the ledge here is really <laughs> cartoon logic. And this is cartoon logic, the way that mm-hmm. he, that he gets that work? Joker. It's, it's completely, you know, this is Tim Burton right here. It's not, you know, his, the defeat of the Joker isn't some big, you know, penultimate you know punch landed on his jaw that knocks him off the side of the building it's it's a gag it's a it's a it's a wily coyote gag (laughs) and you couldn't have seen it coming either how could you have it's so it's such a gag (laughs) and now we're going to get to where did the joker breathe which they also had did harvey dent breathe oh yeah which is the most absurd (laughs) thing is the joker descends a hundred flights yeah well actually wasn't there i mean uh wasn't there a version of the script or something where it's like his body was missing or i think they must have. i think they considered that you know his body is mysteriously not there at the bottom but you know i mean i think they realized that the logic for why you're having the showing this narrative of a batman movie is that He's running into these these crazy costumed criminals, because otherwise you run into the problem: what Batman adventure is worth having a two-hour movie about, and which one isn't? It's also a stretch of physics that um, their Batman's arm wouldn't been wouldn't have been ripped off uh, when that grappling hook <laughs> caught hold after he had been plummeting. But uh, talk about Wiley e. Coyote! You got this mm-hmm. crack in the <laughs> in the ground and no blood except for what was already on his face, which is actually kind of cleared up. It's different blood. And this completely inconsequential little character moment. The uh, the bag of laughs that you get at the uh, Spencer's Gifts. <laughs> and now we're back to the the city center. <laughs> I love the neat tidiness of uh, Commissioner Gordon explaining how they've rounded up all the Joker's men. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow. Yeah, he cut the snake's head off and the rest just falls apart. And Robert Wall is alive and he's still not going to get with Kim Basinger. 
and the ending is this ending is probably like my least favorite part of the whole movie just because it's it's almost like too upbeat compared to the rest of it i mean i guess the realistic ending might have been that um you know might have been like michael keaton telling her that she's a great girl and everything but he's realized that you know being batman is what he has to dedicate his life to right. now but um they they were planning on well, Sam Hamm uh, was planning on bringing Vicky Vale back. In fact, the original script for Batman 2, not Batman Returns, it still has Catwoman, it still has the Penguin. It's very different, but, you know... It and also it, has Vicky Vale, and it also has, they're in a domestic relationship. Yeah, right? they're, they're in a domestic relationship with uh, Robin as their uh, surrogate son. So, yeah, I'm glad they didn't do that. But instead, uh, Vicky Vale just breaks up with <laughs> with... Bruce Wayne between the movies and and Michelle Pfeiffer gets to make fun of her. And they introduce I don't think that's the only reason Michelle Pfeiffer gets to make fun of Kim Basinger. Um see actually not narratively speaking, but I think that at this point Burton's able to with the Danny Elfman music sort of deliver a nice little superhero moment here. This is the most, I think, Superman moment. Yeah, it's very Superman. I mean, because that, um, that bat signal might as well be the American flag. Although, you know, the shot that they... Um, this is a really lame line, too. You know, oh, Bruce Wayne's going to be late. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Um, when, they, when they do finally pan up to him and they show him standing in front of the uh, bat signal, I wouldn't really mind it so much if he had his back to the camera so that we could see more of his billowing cape because when right. he's just he's just standing in profile uh the way he is it's kind of awkward <laughs> i mean it just kind of it's not it's more superman than batman like you say now they repeat this shot basically in the second one only with catwoman and they filmed uh one for the third one with this and they I I don't know if you can even get that footage on the DVD and then they changed it to the utterly lame running out of the bat signal <laughs> which which is an homage to the 60s TV show when the animated Batman and Robin run towards the uh camera and give a thumbs up to each other uh... there you have it batman Still, still talking about it all these years later, <laughs> and it's still it'll always be better than The Dark Knight and Batman I, Begins. I find that interesting. Like even people who like those movies, do you really think that in how many years has this been now? Twenty one years, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, twenty one years. You could actually have anything to say about those movies because they will have relaunched the Batman franchise twice twenty years from now. <laughs> you know, because you're gonna, because Christian Bale's gonna get too old, so you're gonna re- just like happened with Spider-Man. I mean, yeah, I'm I actually can you believe curious. they're relaunching it already. It's absurd. I'm, well, I mean, you know, that's what happens when you cast a thirty-year-old as a uh, teenager, <laughs> and you're not willing to let him age. Then um, they'll run into the same thing with uh, Batman. I mean, clearly. Okay, so Shirley Walker conducted it. She did the music for the TV show. Right. And now we finally get a full-on uh, Prince song, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's either Vicky Waiting or Arms of Orion or something. 
It's not Vicky waiting. It's one of the ballads. I mean, yeah, I mean, just the summer 89, you gotta realize Batman t-shirts were everywhere. Uh, it took, I think, the whole summer before the score came out. Only the Prince album was out at the beginning. And at this point, nobody knew who Danny Elfman really was, so it's yeah. like everybody was clamoring for a uh, Danny Elfman score, and I think that must have been a bit of a surprise to them because it wasn't part of the initial merchandising push. Mm-hmm. And, of course, this is the Batman, the uh, the Alan Smith, the audio commentary, and you have to you have to realize that everything was Batman the something. There was Batman the ride, <laughs> Batman the... The serial, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I had Batman the serial. Can't forget about that. Bob the goon. There you go. He's got the little the goon after him. And the other thing is, is that um, they really didn't do a lot of recognizable cameos. But that was also the era. I mean, now, now you in your smaller roles, you throw somebody recognize like a yeah. character actor from t- the the boss from a TV show. In. <laughs> you fit Stan. You fit Stanley into every Marvel movie. Actually, um, well, the uh, the one nod that they had to that in the Sam Hand script that they didn't use in the movie was. Um, uh, Jack Palance's character was supposed to make reference to Senator Kane and uh, and Councilman Miller, <laughs> but good thing they didn't put that in there. It just makes the movie more self-contained. I mean, the thing is, all I have to say about Batman '89 is that it's, you know, I hope I hope we reach the point again, and I find it hard to imagine we will, but where a big franchisable property will be given over to a promising creative talent who gets free reign to do with it what he wants um, without having to answer to people on the internet. (laughs) Because Batman 89 couldn't have existed uh, if the internet had been around. Because... Boy, if you think they were mad when they found out about Michael Keaton, then... I mean, there was a letter-writing campaign and everything, but if the internet had been around, just ugh, forget it. Wouldn't have even gotten close. Yeah. Um, and the thing about Batman, uh, my closing thought will be is, even though Burton had to deal with ass nine producers and that sort of thing. I mean, he did actually get to make one. And that was the joke I made about the dark Knight. is this is what Christopher Nolan does when he gets to do anything. <laughs> grief. Um, and Burton did at least get to make one where he got to do anything. Um, mm-hmm. with the pro with the, with the franchise property character, whatever. And, um, it's also a big franchisable property being given to a, uh, to a filmmaker, and you don't have that anymore. I mean, the DC movies are being more, they want to make them in line with the Marvel movies where there's sort of this, you know, property emphasis, uh, cross-promotional licensing slash whatever emphasis that... Um, well, I think I think the only thing that's really come close in terms of um, matching artistic integrity is what Sam Raimi got to do with the Spider-Man movies. But even those, I have to sort of look at their accomplishments more as a, as a sum. You like those? Oh my God. (laughs) Well, I don't like the third one like anyone else, but 
I could probably watch the first one anytime. Oh man, I might make you do a commentary on that. <laughs> no, I don't like it that much. Okay. Um Yeah, I was gonna say that, that that's sort of what sets this and the first Superman apart is is that the studio wasn't dictating it. Um mm. maybe the producers were but there's a difference between the producers of a movie dictating what you do and the studio dictating it. Yeah, and the studio now and the comic book company are one and the same, like with Marvel Studios. So, anyways, yeah, Batman 89. What more can be said? Actually, a lot could be said. Yeah. <laughs> we're not going to do another commentary, so this is... We like, missed it. We yeah. missed it, whatever it was. Sorry. Um so I uh, hope everyone enjoyed this and um, be sure and tune in as usual to an Alan Smithy podcast, alansmithypodcast.info. And um, if you have any ideas for what our next commentary track uh, should be, we're perfectly open to suggestions. But um, check out our Halloween 2 commentary uh, track sometime when you get the chance. And uh, I guess that's it. Uh, so for Alan Smithy podcast, uh, this has been Matt. And I've been Andrew. And thanks for listening. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Best of Alan Smithy Podcasts. This is Alex Knopf. Good evening.